1: Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we're going to be talking to songwriter, author, and podcaster Ben Arthur, who I know him from his 2004 album, Edible Darling, which has this like pretty amazing cover where it's a tomato and then um, you can see the, te- the human teeth in the cutout of the tomato. Anyways... Uh, I'm going to get into what we talk about with Ben Arthur after we thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at to get one. Ben Arthur did not know what he was in for on Basic Folk. However, neither did I. So a lot of times when I uh, plan an interview, there is definitely like a certain approach I take. But every once in a while, you throw the plan out the window and just really dig into what gets presented to you. So Ben said to me at one point, I didn't expect all the psychological profiling that we're doing, but I'm into it. Uh, And I was, too. Ben has had an interesting and varied career, but has always had an incredible drive that led him to pursuing several outside-of-the-box projects. Aside from writing and releasing music, Ben's very interested in shedding light on the creative process and allowing music fans to go behind the curtain of how music is made. He's hosted and produced Songcraft Presents, a video series on PBS that featured Ben writing songs with people like My Brightest Diamond, John Wesley Harding, and Ben Sollee. So his latest project is a podcast called Songwriter that features stories and answer songs with people like Ted Leo, Susan Orlean, and others. We really get into this in, in this conversation. It's it's pretty interesting. I uh, hope you enjoy it. He is a very lovely, smart, self-deprecating human. We're going to hear a song that he released on the album American Castles in 2017. It's called New Year's Day. This is actually the theme song to his podcast, Songwriter. And then we'll get into our conversation with Ben Arthur on Basic Folk. worn
0: out feet. I find myself at the temple. I don't care Embarrassed, plain and simple Anyone could see I'm ripped apart I'm like a child with a broken heart I know Echoes only speak in silence But there's Nothing left to say In the Stillness after violence, I to see you on New Year's Day. On New Year's Day, I'm wrong habitually. it's my stand. Ben job.
1: Arthur, let's get into this. Let's. So um, you grew up in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Tell me what the town was like and how you liked it.
0: Um, Town of about 50,000 folks, university town. My folks uh, were a lawyer and uh, college professors, and we were not a, um, you know... A planet uh, orbiting around uh, a larger city, or just uh, just sort of a college town, really.
1: So, what was the family dynamic like?
0: The family dynamic—that's a—that's a broad question. What do you mean? What are we asking about?
1: Was Was it uh, relatively? Was were people funny? Were people dramatic? Were people just kind of crazy, like weirdos? <laughs> like my family's full of weirdos.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, my father's a, a theater professor, so there was a little drama. Occasionally, drama was considered a uh, a good thing to have a little bit of that. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of laughter, a lot of jokes, uh, a lot of goofiness. You know, standard sort of nineteen seventies post divorce boom kind of scene. Uh, when I was young, I think I was the only kid. Uh, I knew whose parents were divorced, anything for me where I felt out of place, I was anxious about it and and almost like to this day like there's there's a part of me that finds people who are willing to be pretentious or or huge sort of breathtaking um you know mm. uh, there's a guy in my neighborhood who dresses as a woman. Maybe he's transitioning, I don't know. But um, but it, it, he's fabulous and it, it takes my breath away uh, because I remember not that long ago, I wore black socks because I'd run out of white socks to the gym and the whole time I was self-conscious, which just seems ridiculous. Um, and also I'm a performer, <laughs> you would think I could handle people uh, noticing something, but I, th- I think there's a sense uh, that I have of like sticking out for the wrong reasons is bad.
1: Where do you think that comes from? Because I've heard I, I've read a bunch of interviews with you and you've talked about that. In fact, I've heard <laughs> <Have> the Jim <laughs> Sox story before. And it's so interesting to me. And I have a couple of questions. I don't know if I'll get to them now or later on. Okay. But like this, like, you know, you are a performer. You are a creative person. Yet you're just like, look at me. Don't look at me. But look <laughs> at me. I don't I know feel if that's like... you or not.
0: I think that is me, but I also feel like that's everyone. It's like, look at me, but only look at me for the right reasons. (laughs) And if you like me, and I I think a lot of us have trouble, uh, and I certainly do, not being liked, uh, being willing to to take risks. And and really, if you don't take risks, if you're not willing to let people dislike at least your work, if not you personally, you're going to make bad work. I hadn't realized I was repeating my gym sock story. Apologies.
1: Oh yes, so you're not allowed to tell that gym sock story anymore. I thought it was a really good story. It was a great example of how you know you could just. Like one little thing can like completely take over.
0: Well, the re- the ridiculous tyranny of the outfit. You know, I have a 13-year-old daughter. So she uh, she's just incredibly bold with the way she dresses. And there was a brief period where uh, my wife and I were sort of trying to like give her input. Like, oh, that kind of clashes, honey. And at, at a certain point, we had to sort of accept that. All we were doing is just sort of parroting dumb rules that really didn't mean anything.
1: Mm. Oh, that's so interesting.
0: Yeah, there's no reason that stripes can't be worn with polka dots. It's just a goofy rule that we sort of absorbed from the culture. So we stopped, and she constantly gets complimented by people
1: for her style. Do you find yourself? Do you find yourself learning? From your 13 year old daughter when it comes to just like, oh, well, she doesn't care. I am an adult man who should not care.
0: I, I, I feel like I would like to say that I learned, but I, I in some ways, I would say a, a more honest a- answer is that I just am yet more ashamed of my inability to be <laughs> oh my myself. God.
1: Ben, just relax.
0: I know, right? I, I know. I'm with you, Cindy.
1: I'm interested in learning a little bit more about your origin family dynamic, particularly where creativity was encouraged. If there were any other musicians or artists in your family that helped foster that creativity.
0: Uh, my mom sings a lot. Um, my dad is a, a theater professor. Um, my stepmother paints. My oldest brother is a, a pen and ink artist. So it was certainly around. Saw a lot of theater when I was a kid. So there was a ton you're of You're just kind
1: of, but it seems like you're just like ticking these things off. But like, did they have any particular impact about the way that you viewed the world when you were younger?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, you would you would certainly think so, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're surrounded by art that must have an impact on you. But if I'm honest, I think it's hard to draw a line from that work to my work. I'm sure Mm -hmm. it's there somewhere, but it's not something that I can see clearly from here. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. I think maybe what might make more sense for you is that uh, when it comes to your family dynamic, but I also might be wrong in this as well, is that you have this like really intense drive with your work, like a lot of different projects going on at once that are creative, but require lots of focus and lots of dedication. And um, maybe maybe that was something that you ebbed or something that you absorbed when you were younger that uh, made it into your life?
0: Although in some ways I'd actually draw a clearer line between the gym socks because I I think that the artists, there's a part of, of a lot of artists I know, including myself, that wants to be looked at and wants to be admired, wants to be understood uh, really and and to to draw a connection between your experience what you're what you're feeling on the inside of your chest and what someone else feels. And I think I think that does come from a certain type of anxiety and a, a certain type of fear and and an unsteadiness uh, internally. You know, I, I don't know that there are a lot of Buddhist monks who have to write songs about heartbreak. You know what I mean? Like if you have oh, yeah. if you have successfully sort of found a center, I don't I don't know how much art still touches you. Maybe it does. I don't know. Mm. But I, I I I can only say that I think I and a lot of artists probably come to it, at least, out of anxiety and and a desire to be understood and accepted and to work out some of the emotional entanglement that you experience. And I and I don't I don't know that it's something that you necessarily hold on to. Ideally, like for me, I have I don't feel like I'm still there. In fact, in some ways, you know how uh, when you are getting your PhD, like you almost can't still want to get your PhD before they give you your PhD. You know what I mean? Like it has to seem completely ridiculous for them to be like, aha, yes, you are now a doctor. I feel like in some ways art is like that too, where you come to it because you want other people to embrace or accept or admire your thing. But by the end of it, it will force you to only do it because you care about it um, and because Mm -hmm. it matters. And it does not matter what anyone else thinks of it.
1: Are you talking about the feeling of being enough?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, But also that if you are making art for someone else, for the audience in your mind, you are, you know, not definitely, but probably making worse art than you could be making.
1: Who is the audience in your mind?
0: Now it 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 doesn't exist a lot. It now it increasingly exists of different facets of myself. I think.
1: Ooh, Ben! Yeah, one time just me. I listened to this. I listened to this great podcast with yeah. Roseanne Cash and Sharon yeah. Salzberg. Yes. And Roseanne Cash was calling. I think what you're calling the audience in your mind. She called them the committee. <laughs> It sounds like very similar of like this, just the committee is is perfect where it's like you will never please this committee.
0: Oh, and, and the act of trying to please the committee means that your art probably doesn't come out as good if not it you know probably doesn't come out good at all because you, you you know the process of trying to please other people will will inevitably be a stumbling block to getting to creating something interesting because the committee doesn't like interesting the committee likes stuff that it's heard before
1: so what you're saying is that anxiety is a blessing and a curse
0: I would say mostly a curse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the the blessing might be that you you get into art perhaps. Maybe we could make that argument. Um but I, yeah. I think mostly it's a bar towards getting where you want to get in your life and should be let go of as much as possible.
1: As somebody who is dealing, it sounds like you're like dealing with anxiety on a pretty consistent basis. (laughs) Have you ever, I mean, it sounds like you would be kind of elated if it just, if you just woke up one day and it went away. But maybe tell me how that might be for you.
0: I'm not sure I'd be human. I, I I don't, I don't think a lot of us are able to let go of anxiety like that i I haven't met a lot of people
1: but just imagine you were
0: okay i I, i'm closing my eyes and uh (laughs) there i am i look very i'm smiling yeah i look relaxed i just farted in someone in front of someone yep oh god that's really embarrassing now i'm now i'm ashamed
1: but you don't have any anxiety or inhibition
0: (laughs) i know right and that's why you know i don't care
1: Right. But then you don't have any more drive. Um,
0: no, I, I'm not sure that's true. I think, I, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd be curious. I'd be curious. Uh, I do think anxiety uh, is a driver for most artists. Um, and I do think, you know, when you mentioned before that I do a lot of uh, different projects and have been a hustler my whole life, yes. Yes, some of that comes from anxiety and from being eager to please. But an increasing proportion of it comes from, I feel like doing this because it makes me happier. In in fact, an increasing proportion of it comes from, I believe that my world is made better, my personal world. And I believe that one of the few ways that I can make the larger world better is by doing this practice, this like yoga or like, you know, meditation Art is a practice that you do, and you don't do it for the ends. You do it because it makes you, and ideally, if you're able to make anything that touches anyone, the world, slightly better.
1: I love it. Recently, in recent years, you and I have connected because um, of your brother, Michael. Yes. Yes which he is an established artist in New York City. He's a friend of mine. He's a very funny person, like one of my favorite people to be around. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could talk about your relationship with him and if there's any sort of like crossover between your artistic worlds
0: Hard to say. I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe not. Certainly, I think we call each other when we run into production issues or business issues or sometimes creative issues. But that is rarer, probably rarer than it should be. But it, you know, it doesn't surprise me in a way. You know, Cindy, like when I talk to my musician friends, like the amount of time we spend complaining about you know whatever touring or promotion or whatever. Uh, versus being like, hey, what's a song that you wrote recently (laughs) that you're really into? Like, what are you thinking about artistically? It's actually something like I I try, speaking of practice, it's something that I try to to Mm. do better at and focus on trying to talk to my artist friends about art instead of complaining (laughs) about lifestyle or whatever.
1: Well, Michael means a lot to me, and it means a lot to me that you and I are talking right now. So, can we talk about when you first picked up the guitar? Yes, Michael was actually the one that lent you the guitar.
0: That's it. That's it. It was an old Yamaha, Um, and he taught me the first song that I recall ever playing, which was "Lola." Uh, Although weirdly, he taught me an F uh, with a bar chord: F, G, A, um, and uh, it was not which is not right. Um well, it's a lot easier to play in C. <laughs> um, C, 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 oh, C, C, right. C, D, E. C is
1: like a pretty standard f, f is hard hard uh, well,
0: right? you know bar chords uh, particularly with a cranky yamaha um but yeah mm-hmm. he um he was the first person who who gave me uh lent me a, a guitar and and i uh you know, we did a lot of singing together back in the day, fire and rain uh by James Taylor and Slip, Sliding away Paul Simon. Good Stuff,
1: what made you want to pick up the guitar?
0: I, you know, I, I've always had a jokey answer that it was that it was Lyle Lovett getting Julia Roberts to fall in love with him,
1: which is real.
0: I mean, <laughs> I it would is,
1: respect that answer. <laughs> I,
0: I think it is real a little bit. I mean, I was 14, 15 years old.
1: I mean, well, like Ben, think about it like Lyle Lovett is a pretty goofy looking guy.
0: Oh, no, I thought Julie- about it. I Julie thought about- <laughs> Robert's is like
1: the most beautiful woman alive.
0: Yeah, no, I did the calculus on that. I did the geometry, <laughs> I did the math. It, it it all seemed to check out. Um, you know, that was my jokey answer, but I actually think there there is a, a very real grain of truth behind that. Um, which is uh, I I think I perceived it as a way of making myself seem more appealing to to girls. And and I do think that that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and and I do think that the anxiety that sort of rests beneath that, um, you know, then, you know, flowed into other parts of, of making art in the initial stages anyway.
1: So it seems like as soon as it, you know, all that stuff is going mo- going on. But as soon as you started playing music on the guitar, you decided that I don't know how soon after it happened, but you decided like, oh, this is going to be my path. This is going to be the thing. That I'm doing. Um, can you talk about what it felt like for you to discover playing music beyond, like, the reason for picking up the guitar, and then on top of that, what it felt like to write your own music?
0: Well, right, that was actually one of the things that struck me very early. Like, I'm happy, you know. There, there were. I remember, for example, I didn't. I felt that I was starting very late at fourteen or fifteen or whatever I was, because (laughs) I had read that Angus Young had started when he was ten or eleven, and I thought, well, I'm washed up. That's too. It's too late.
1: Over the hill.
0: Yeah, pretty much. But I very quickly ran into my friend Rob, uh, who's one of the guys who founded the Hackensaw Boys. And he had written a song, a beautiful, sweet song. And I remember just being completely struck and taken with, with his song. And am and, and grateful in hindsight that, you know, I started writing so quickly, you know, inspired by him, because a lot of people, it takes a little while before they start Going at that, and I and I feel like songwriting is really, sort of the central passion of of my life. And performing is in there, and it's a lot of fun, and it's it's pleasant to share um, the thing I'm working on or the thing I've been thinking about uh, with people. But I would say I'm more of a songwriter than I am a performer.
1: And then in talking about these kind of different projects that you work on you work on several projects that include a couple of video series breaking down an artist's creative process and writing and recording a song right and putting different artists together to co-write which is like these are such like interesting concepts so I'm wondering like when in your life after you were like all right I'm writing songs I'm playing songs when did you start incorporating these alternative ideas into your career
0: Yeah. um, So Songcraft Presents uh, was a video series that, you know, me and a guy named Matthew Hendershot, who's a videographer and now a podcast uh, host, and the guys from Dubway Studios, Al and Mike, sort of came up uh, with together. Um, And it wasn't really something that I had searched out, or I had really been thinking about, you know, lots of people pivoted to video, as I understand it. But it was really just something that my friend Al, who I had recorded a couple albums with, emailed me and said, "Hey, I have this guy who wants to make, you know, a video project. What, what do you have?" And so we sort of co- collaboratively came up with the idea of me sitting down with another artist and and writing and recording the song, a song over the course of a a few hours and had a lot of fun with it. Um, did a bunch of uh, online videos and then eventually um, had a chance to make some shows for PBS and uh, have gotten five Emmy nominations for those episodes and did a a cool project for Ford. Um, And by cool, I mean, well-paid, which is a very rare thing in uh, rock and roll in my experience.
1: (laughs) Right. So that that was kind of like the beginning of you being like, oh, maybe like, I don't know, it just seems like such a, I don't want to say like, quote unquote great move but like you had this other side of your creativity that you really tapped into and that seemed like the 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 very beginning of the synthesis of it
0: I think that's a nice way of spinning what is in fact like I don't know how the heck to I can swear in this podcast can't I
1: oh yeah swear away
0: I don't know how the hell to make this work. Um, the record industry appears to be falling apart. The money that can be had is plummeting for sinking songs. Uh, you know, I remember my friend Bruce, uh, who you know has played uh, with Patty, like uh, Patty Smith, because the night that piano, that's him, and he's played with you too and all these amazing people. And I remember him yelling at me because I had licensed a song for two thousand dollars, and he said I should have asked for thirty thousand because. Because at a certain yeah. point in his career, that was normal. And now I think I, I would be lucky to even get 2,000. It would probably be 500 these days. So... I, I think it's nice to imagine that that this is me, you know, expanding my creative wings or whatever, uh, spreading my creative wings. But I, I think it's really just, I don't know how to move forward in this really radically different landscape. And I'm willing to try things and see whether they fit within... Oh yes, I would do this for free because I love this. And and mm. that that's usually sort of the test. And I think it's the yeah. test for for most musicians, you know, you've probably heard the the three-legged stool rule. It can be a good hang, it can be good money um and or no, uh, I don't know or, that
1: rule. Explain it.
0: Yeah, yeah, so this is sort of the sideman rule that it can be a good hang, like nice people, it can be good money, obviously, or it can be Good art. And usually you can pick two out of three, <laughs> but you don't oh. get all three. But, you know, essentially my strategy would be let's make sure it's good hang and it's good art. And then I'll try to figure out how to make a, or jerry rig a, a third stool leg out of tinfoil and spit and gum.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> when working on these kind of interesting projects where you're trying to make a third, leg out of the stool. Mm -hmm. You you work with a variety of musicians on co-writing and these musicians allow you into their like most intimate creative processes. Can you talk about how you go about deciding what kind of musicians or what kind of writers to work with on these types of projects and do you find you can just... You can just ask anyone or do you have to think <laughs> about like their versatility?
0: I, I, You've probably found that with your uh, your basic folk. You can ask anyone. It's yeah. getting them to say yes. That's the challenge. I feel like my job in in any of these Songcraft Presents uh, sessions is to make sure a the artist feels comfortable and creatively free, and b to act as a backstop in case uh, someone does go blank and doesn't know how to move forward. and Uh, that really almost never happens. You know, there have been one or two occasions where an artist has needed to sort of lean a little bit, um, which has been fine. I'm right here. Um, And I've done this before and I'm comfortable and happy to be there, but it's really, it hasn't been an issue. Like the, my experience of the artists who, who spend their lives writing songs and, and thinking about this stuff is that they're Olympic athletes and they don't get to race as much as they'd like to race. And, when you you put them on the track uh, they just go so it, you know it's it's really never been an issue um so we we are probably more cavalier about it than we once were as we sort of but
1: that's but is that just because of the the caliber of musicians that you're asking
0: maybe we've worked with people who you know are pretty uh, early in their careers and uh, you know that's fine too You know, I think of John D. Graham and his son, William Harry's Graham, Rob Reinhart from Acoustic Cafe, who we, you know, collaborate with on this on these projects, particularly the Ford project you know we had uh, i saw sorry rob had posted on his website uh, reposted a, a session we did with william and john d and william is now uh, you know a dashing you know 22 year old uh young man with a record deal but this video, I glanced at it as I clicked past, and uh, he was just a boy. You know, he was, I think, 15 years old, maybe 16 years old. And it was fine. You know, John was right there. John gave us an incredible lick and an incredible sort of frame that he'd been playing with. And, you know, we we cobbled something together. It was, you know, writing a song is not that hard. Writing a great song is nearly impossible but writing a song is not that hard and and i really feel like you know the you were asking about sort of what ties these things together in some ways in a, my political campaign my sort of belief that that i'm out there shaking my fist over is that more people should do this. More people should write songs. More people should sing together. It is a thing that we uh, collectively as human beings, it's a gift that we have and it brings us closer. And we have allowed a sort of weird idea of professionalism to to get in our way. And there's no reason you shouldn't write a song tomorrow. It's fun and it's pleasant and, and you get to express yourself. And there's a there's a weird mystique about music that's just goofy um, as far as I'm concerned and and we you know we need to take it back for people um, because it's it's incredibly powerful and incredibly satisfying deeply satisfying and the idea that you know thousands of uh, you know Americans are off there doing a you know somewhat obscure Eastern exercise routine yoga <laughs> um, but we're all afraid for the most part to pick up a, a harmonica or whatever and 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 write a little ditty is is goofy to me
1: oh man we have hit the stride in this interview <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right
0: I, I, I got a little didactic i'm sorry
1: no it's good so your latest project is a podcast in collaboration yes. with acoustic cafe song writer Can you explain the idea and how you came to want to work on a podcast?
0: The idea of Songwriter is that we have a story and a song written in response to the story. And the first season features artists like Roxanne Gay and Joyce Carol Oates and Gary Steingart and Ted Leo and Vienna Tang and Kurt Anderson and you know, Rick Moody, Senya Rubinos, just really extraordinary artists. And it sort of, you know, like Songcraft Presents, sort of peels back the, a little bit of the sort of mystique of songwriting and shows, you know, an angle on inspiration, on how an artist ingests another artist's work and then makes their own work in response. You know, every piece of art that is made is, is a response to another piece of art, probably many pieces of art. Uh, we are all, we are all standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, and this just sort of uh, takes that idea and sort of curates the the process. And it's just so much fun and fascinating and weird and interesting uh, to see how how people do it. Like a lot of a lot of sort of my fascination with all of these projects really comes down to I want to see how they do the amazing thing that they do. And it's been a joy and an honor really to to sit next to some artists that I really admire, you know, sort of virtually collaborate, if not really collaborate with uh, them and see how they do what they do.
1: So you mentioned this quote, actually, you mentioned this earlier, and and you actually have quoted it online before you say, pretension is something I both deeply admire and personally can't abide. And so we talked a little bit about how that basically means like black socks at the gym make you feel anxious. (laughs) Um, So I feel like the thing that makes you cringe the most is actually really helpful when being a podcast host or mm. any kind of host. Mm-hmm. How do you approach hosting and work around that feeling?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you know we have this idea of the things that repel us also attract us you know the the guys who, uh, run Fortune five hundred companies secretly want to be tied up and yelled at. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I I think uh, I think you you just have to embrace the discomfort. It is challenging for me. I don't I don't know whether you've had this experience at all. But like just figuring out the tenor of your voice, like where in your voice you're going to speak from, whether you're going to like sort of be peppy and and high or sort of relaxed and low and. Like, it, it's it's a little like acting for the first time where it's like, I how do I hold my arms again? I can't remember, you know what I mean? Um, except it's with your voice. Uh, it, it's just a process, figuring it out, trying, you know, like like with making a song, you know, you, you start out and you're like, okay, there's something there, but there's this one bit that's bothering me and you keep going back until the thing doesn't bother you anymore. And uh, mm. it's been like that for me.
1: So it just seems like it's... It's something that you really have to like work at or pay attention to, but it doesn't like I and I'm coming at this for as like a radio person who also feels very similar to you, how you feel. Yeah. Where you're like I'm just like a regular person. I don't have a giant ego, and if you have a giant ego, it's a lot easier.
0: Is it? I I think it's I think it's easier maybe. It would seem easier. But but a lot of the people who are fronting with the giant ego, it's because they feel the opposite. And, and that's the way they, they tackle that. I think the most uh, secure person doesn't ride uh, a Harley Davidson and wear a muscle tee, if you know what I mean
1: but it sure comes in handy though when you want to like <laughs> get up on a mic or something like that. <laughs> I
0: don't think it does. I think it's it's better to be human and to be honest where you can. Yeah. I think if you approach life through the uh, stiletto heels and the bouffant hair, if that's the analog of um, uh, a Harley <laughs> Davidson and a muscle t-shirt. You you are saying I do not want anyone close. I do not want anyone to, f- to feel empathy with me. I do not want right. anyone to think I am vulnerable. And I'm okay with Gosh. people thinking I'm vulnerable. And I think the most interesting people, and it's certainly the most interesting artists, are okay with people understanding their vulnerability.
1: And on that note, you say, when it comes to people's writing, you say, I'm partial to writers who put themselves on the line. It's fairly easy to hide behind obscure, semi-nonsense lyrics. And I like hearing songs where the artist is brave enough to say what they mean to put all their cards on the table. Yeah. I tend to agree with you on that. And I was wondering if we could have a little bit of a conversation about lyrics that are and I was thinking I was trying to think of the correct vocabulary words um, lyrics that are like too direct too clear and not abstract enough Um, it can come off the wrong way so I feel like there's this like line
0: so I think it is possible to be too direct and non-specific like, if you write a song that's just like, I love you, and I really, really love you, you aren't telling a specific story. You are, you may be right. telling a true story, and you may be being very honest, but you're not giving someone the sort of nuts and bolts of reality to to hang the rest of the story on. But I, I think if you were telling a specific story, whether it's about you or whether it's about someone else, and you are as honest as you can be... About the the sort of interior life, I, I it's it's hard to imagine how you can be too direct there. And I think I think it's really hard, and I think it can be cringeworthy and embarrassing sometimes. But I also think that's sort of extraordinary and admirable in its own way. I've seen art that has made me cringe because it was so direct and so honest. Mm. I think it is far easier to hide in art particularly songs, I think it is so much easier to hide than to be honest. I would love to hear Radiohead, who is a band I love, love them. I would love to hear a straightforward song that didn't hide, for my money, behind lyrical subterfuge. I'd love to hear Tom York write about you know, his life or someone else's life in a direct way. I think that would be breathtaking.
1: Here's here, let me quote you to yourself again. In art, generally, I like to see contradiction. In motivation and action, I like voices and characters who are difficult or disagreeable, but still sympathetic. I like complication. So you're often pairing up artists to work together. Yeah. You've done a lot of collaborations yourself. How does that mentality play into how you feel about contradiction?
0: I I don't know. I I can't seem to imagine fomenting contradictions in a way that wouldn't be uncomfortable for my guests. And at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. my job is to to get the very coolest art from the very coolest artists <laughs> and most interesting people. I am drawn to artists who write about contradiction. Joyce Carol Oates is someone who will, you know, in an upcoming episode she reads a story about a mom whose daughter comes home from school with bruises on the back of her arms and uh, and a cut underneath her hairline and the the you know, guidance counselor has approached her about it and asked her about it. And she gets very upset, but it turns out it's the girl's best friend. The woman gets so upset that she ends up drugging her daughter uh, to, get a, to get her to calm down and uh, and take a nap with her. It's a very strange, upsetting, wow. dark. Yeah, it's a heck of a story. It's a hell of a story. And Ted Leo writes a beautiful song um, in response to it. And, you know, in our conversations, talks about some of his own experiences with uh, abuse and with confronting his own responsibility and other people's responsibilities to to him, and where they, you know some people might might not have served him as well as they could have. I, I think the the art is contradictory. The The curation is not contradictory. I, 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 as I say, I would never presume to to try to put someone in an uncomfortable place. Generally speaking, my first question when I get someone to to uh, you know agree to be a part of this is to ask them if there's anyone they would like to hear do their you know respond to their work. Um, Senia Rubinos, uh, for example, was brought by Rick Moody because he is a fan. I wanted to see her her work there, and I will say too another sort of challenge that really has much more to do with with choice is diversity. Um, trying to make you know I'm, I'm a white dude, can't help that, um, and so I feel like I need to focus on um, having you know lots of non-white dudes on the show, yeah. uh, lots of women, lots of people of color and trying to raise other voices than, you know, just dudes like me. So that that's much more of a, a focus uh, on uh, of my curation than anything to do with people's art.
1: And I would have to I would have to say that that comes off like I do notice that in your projects that you seem oh, to be like an equal opportunity project manager <laughs> and that you're often showcasing and highlighting an equal number of, like, male and female artists and was wondering, like, how often you... It sounds like you think about that kind of thing a lot and has your consciousness about gender equality maybe changed at all over your career?
0: I mean, yeah, it has, but only in the most embarrassing in hindsight ways. I mean, like, have you watched any of the movies that you loved when you were in high school? Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, like Pretty in Pink, we tried to watch that with my daughters the other day. And it is not just racist and incredibly sexist. It's also rapey, like really, really rapey. And what shocks me about that isn't that that's in there, but that I had no idea that that was in there. Like, I don't understand how I could have watched that and not been like, whoa, that's really upsetting and offensive. Like, right. it just, it it literally didn't cross my mind.
1: I want to ask one more question. Okay. I'm going to let you pick. Um, I'd love to hear the story about you and your wife getting together <laughs> and moving to New York or just talking about New York itself
0: Oh, well, the second question is boring um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife and I have been together for almost 30 years we both loved the city and would come up here and meet people who were interesting and artistic and surprising
1: are you both from the same hometown
0: oh yeah we went to the prom together oh we've, we've been dating since we what? were babies
1: oh my god
0: yeah, yeah. All these years, um, I'm gonna throw uh, up. I'm so sorry I made you physically <laughs> ill, Sydney. I didn't mean to. Uh, I uh, I take it you you uh, have been in a relationship for just as long. Um, from no, from you throwing up. That's a, that's why you're throwing up because it's coincidental. How how like our lives, your life is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I too have been in a thirty-year relationship with my well, high school prom date. No, well, thank God, I haven't. It,
0: it will—is your high school prom date not not the catch that you know? Okay.
1: No, probably. I don't know. Probably not.
0: Well, probably. if you thought that was bad, let me tell you—we've actually never had an argument, and every day we buy each other uh, a handful of flowers, um, and it's always Shut been up. easy. No, it's always been easy. Uh, no. Oh my God so we interview uh, over interview over goodbye (laughs) sir um no we we wanted to come to the city and sort of she uh, got her graduate degree up here and you know my sense was new york was an incredible place to be surrounded by art and artists and it has turned out to be Our, our real fear was that we wouldn't be able to raise children here um was that we would be you know putting them in danger, but the city's changed maybe, or maybe we've changed uh, as well as the city. And here we are all these years later, quite happily ensconced in, in Manhattan and enjoying every day of it.
1: So we do this thing called the lightning round? Yeah, hit me. All right, hang on, we'll be right back for the lightning round. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Tina and Her Pony, a queer duo bringing traditional Appalachian music and vocal harmonies into the 21st century visit tinaandherpony.com. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. All right, Ben Arthur, you ready for the lightning round? I am. Okay, what was the first album you bought with your own money?
0: I stole Adora's album. I I bought it. uh, Bought it, i.e. stole it.
1: Ah, uh, what was your first concert?
0: I think I saw Jefferson Starship when I was in fifth grade.
1: So I have read this before, what your dream band would be can you list your dream <laughs> band for me
0: i feel like it's changed a little bit so now i want father john misty on piano in addition to Lou harris on backing vocals and i'm gonna switch in byron isaacs from the lumineers on bass but dave Grohl on drums i mean you just can't go wrong with that guy he's just just amazing actually i take that back i should probably go with the guy from okay go because he played on my record he's pretty amazing too <laughs>
1: What is your favorite type of white noise? Fan. Beatles or the Rolling Stones?
0: Absolutely, the Beatles. I, I to this day I don't entirely get the Stones.
1: If you are having a, uh, if you and your wife are having a baby, do you do a gender reveal or do you wait to find out? <laughs>
0: no gender reveal, but I definitely find out. Like if anyone asks, I would tell them. But yeah, I I don't. I don't understand the whole like, pretend we're in the 18th century having a baby thing. It's fine, but I don't get it. I also it's feel like, like not women... even
1: the 18th century. It's like the 1980s.
0: Yeah, I feel. I also <laughs> feel like women should use whatever pain medication that they would like to use during childbirth and not feel at all self conscious about it ever.
1: This is getting good. All right, uh, flying <laughs> or invisibility.
0: Flying. I don't understand the invisibility people. I think they're shameful and terrible. And wow. uh, yeah, furtive masturbators, every one of them. Um, <laughs> you could fly. You could fly. You could fly. And all you want to do is skulk around. I, 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 don't, I, I don't get it. It's just so understand. goth. <laughs> I guess. I guess.
1: Dogs, cats or something else?
0: I have an awesome dog, so I'm going to say dogs, but I have met some awesome cats. I happen to have terrible cats, um, so I, Mm. I don't like my cats. I'm sure there are other amazing cats out there, though.
1: What is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: There is a little creek in Virginia called Whistle Creek and these weird little falls that uh, are really lovely. And one little fall after another and you can actually walk up the stream and it, it's it's just about as lovely as any place I've ever been.
1: That's great. I was just Google image searching mm. Whistle Creek, Virginia Falls, and you're right.
0: <laughs> it's not bad, right?
1: It looks real good. Uh, ben Arthur, thank you so much for um, just being such a good sport, answering all my questions.
0: What a fascinating conversation! I, you know, I have to say, and and I, you know, I think this is high praise, but like I, I generally go into uh, interviews assuming that my interviewer has. Almost no idea who I am or what I do, <laughs> and so it is very disconcerting, but in a good way, um, to actually have someone who has so clearly um, done her homework and read uh, old interviews, and uh, you know, and to have such a clear idea of uh, my work. So thank you. It's uh, it's truly a, a pleasure to talk with you, and I appreciate all the time that you put into preparing for this and to talking with me. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Ben. That's really nice, and. You know we didn't even talk about the tomato teeth album cover (laughs) well
0: part two here we come
1: (laughs) that'll be its own episode
0: so am i when do i start recording
1: (laughs) (laughs) should i go ahead
0: should i press (laughs) record
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah is it now is it now yeah press press record now
0: (laughs) okay great
1: What's great about that interview is that I think that might have been the first time that I've asked someone a question and they're like, that question is boring. So thanks, Ben Arthur. Thank you to Adam Corey for producing this episode of Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Laura McCarthy is a producer for Basic Folk. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes. I am your host. I run the Facebook group, Basic Folk Basics, which is pretty amazing. I post videos of my dad playing accordion. And also, it's a lot of fun. You know, we we talk about music. We share pictures of our coffee mugs. So you can come on over on Facebook, Basic Folk Basics. You can also go to cindyhouse.net for show notes and sign up for the newsletter for Basic Folk. And we will talk to you later next week because it's a weekly podcast. You made it all the way to the end, which is my favorite thing. Thank you. Please rate and subscribe and tell everyone you've ever met about this podcast. Okay. Thank you. Bye.